Welcome to Trying Days the Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Philip Nelson, author of Remember the Liberty, Almost Sunk by Treason on the High Seas, about the vicious attack on a U.S. naval ship in collusion with the president intended to foment war between Israel and her Arab neighbors. Phil has also written LBJ, the mastermind of the JFK assassination, LBJ from Mastermind to the Colossus, and Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr., The Case Against, Lyndon B. Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. Hey, Phil, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this, you know. Phil, you'd work with Skyhorse, you know, on your on your first books, and, and then how come you came to me for Remember the Liberty? Uh, I, I had already published the first two books, LBJ, The Mastermind of the Assa JFK Assassination, and followed by LBJ, From Mastermind to the Colossus. And that, that covered the term, his term in office, basically. Well, two chapters within that second book were de devoted to uh, the USS Liberty attack. Skyhorse felt that they had already covered the subject. 1968 is when the Liberty happened, correct? 1967. 1967, excuse me. That was the year I graduated from high school and was, you know, I kind of remembered it. It happened, you know, but it, it didn't really, you know, affect my life uh, per se. And so it just, you know, kind of went on. I, I really enjoyed the book. Now, how did you get uh, in touch with the, uh, the crew people that were um, there, which is a big part of Remember the Liberty? Okay, but, but before I address that, I, I would like to comment on what you just said there. And that is that you are not alone in that. That story was squashed almost as soon as it happened. There were a few stories that, that appeared and they were all filled with you know, um, errors. In fact, there was a headline in the San Francisco uh, Chronicle, I guess it was, that there were four killed and I think it was 50 injured, okay? Well, it was actually 34 men were killed, you know, and 174 were injured. And so you have a total of greater than 200 people were considered casualties on a, on a ship that, that carried 294 people. So the, the vast majority of the, of the crew were somehow incapacitated or killed or whatever. So anyway, that story, though, Johnson made sure was just going to be killed immediately. And the cover-up began immediately after that. And the cover-up continues today. So here we are with just a few uh, books that have trickled out over the years, and I think mine has gone further than any or all of them combined, including the latest one by Joan Mellon. Okay, now, so to answer your other question, how did I convince these survivors to help write that book? Basically, I had gone ahead and published the second book, the Colossus book, with those two chapters in it, and then I sent free copies to any survivor who wished to have it. And so I, got, I had a number of requests. I don't remember how many, but it must have been, oh, 25 or 30, I suppose, to anybody who claimed that they were a survivor and almost without question. But although I did have a list of all the people who were on it, all the men who were. But there were a few others, other people who were very strong supporters of them I, that I sent as well, because just because of that. They have a history of being very supportive of the um, Liberty survivors. Well, I, I corresponded with a number of them after having done that. Uh, but three of them uh, accepted my suggestion that we do a book together and to get their stories uh, within the body of that book. And as you know, you know, those stories 
probably comprise maybe a third or half the book, probably close to a half. And they are very compelling, very sobering, very profound stories about what they experienced and, and the sheer treachery that, that they had to endure, not just during the attack, but in the subsequent hours after that, because it, because it took over 18 or about 18 hours for any help to arrive, which is very strange in itself, isn't it? That, that help was so close nearby in, in, the, in the, the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean. You know, they were only 10 minutes away by fighter jet. And yet two, two squadrons of fighter jets were uh, ordered to be returned. So by... give us the, the thumbnail uh, description of the Liberty incident. And I mean, it not that uh, kismet that this ship was called the Liberty, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's more than kismet. I, I think it was specific. I, I, I think that it was put there for that very purpose. Well, obviously, it was it was in the circulation even before, but it had just returned from from the U.S. from from Norfolk uh, back to the African coast. The, the, it had been uh, put in a dry dock down there to to fix some problems that that were discovered during the the cruise down from uh, Norfolk. And when they suddenly on uh, May the twenty third uh, got the got the message that they needed to proceed to Rota, Spain with this batch, you know, at top speed that they could handle immediately, that is. And so they had to very quick muster everyone back together. They were scattered throughout hotels there in Abidjan. And so they they spent uh, seven or eight days just going from Abidjan up to Rota, Spain at full speed uh, and there, they, they took on new supplies and some some new uh, linguists that they, they needed for this uh, assignment. And within a couple of days, they were off. This was about June 1st that, that they set sail then for the Eastern Mediterranean. They were south of Italy on June the 5th, when suddenly the, this uh, war, uh, this sudden incident, which was just subsequently called the Six-Day War, uh, suddenly started on June the 5th, and when in fact it had been planned for many months, years actually, uh, to actually start on June the 15th. So in fact, the, the operation was known as Frontlet 615, which meant June 15th. And that was, that was a key element of, of the plan all along. And so, so when that was uh, broken and they, they started 10 days early, it threw everything else out of kilter. And thus, it was caught, I mean, the, the Liberty was still on its way to that uh, site on the Eastern Mediterranean, just off the Sinai. It took them until the late in the evening of June the 7th to arrive there, so that the morning of June the 8th of 1967 is when, uh, when they were there and started their operations. That what is, was your operation? What, what The Liberty was an intelligence ship? It was an intelligence ship. And it was sent there to uh, monitor uh, all of the uh, radio traffic, you know, that was going on. And it already missed some of it, you know, by the fact that it was late. So the, I guess the point of that is that on the morning of June the 8th, suddenly th there were overflights, 12 to 13 overflights by Israeli aircraft, sort of getting scoped out, you know, the Liberty. And 
they shouldn't have been surprised after all this is a joint effort that had been planned for months and years yet they feigned surprise i guess I, that's still a source of a lot of confusion but but they they claimed they didn't know that liberty was was there uh, they later claimed that they mistook that for an Egyptian ship. That Egyptian ship was only a quarter of the size, substantially less than half the size of the Liberty. And it had none of the antenna. There were 45 various kinds of antenna and that uh, what was an early version of a satellite uh, dish that was uh, bounced off the, the moon was all out there on the Liberty. And it was, it was unique. I mean, no one in the right mind could have really thought that that was what, what had been an Egyptian horse transport ship that was now rusting in a dock in uh, Al Amrish or something like that. It was not operating at all, and they had to know that. Anyway, so suddenly they attacked the ship. About It was at 2 o'clock local time, which was 8 a.m. Uh, Washington time. You know, they, they sent out three Mirage uh, fighter jets, uh, very, very fast. They were in a triangular formation attacking the ship with, with cannon and missiles and so forth. And, and they, they went for the gun mounts first. There were four gun mounts. And that was the only thing that protected that ship, the only defense. Well, they were the first things to go. They got shut up very, very quickly. And suddenly the ship was defenseless at that point. And that, the, so the Mirage jets flew off and, and the Mystere uh, jets came in, they were slower and they could just kind of wind their way around the ship and drop uh, packs of napalm, et cetera, et cetera, which is basically gasoline in a gel form. And they, they, they covered the decks with this. And of course, firing it then set the decks on fire. And, and so you, you have these men running around down there on the deck, get it getting burned alive in some cases, or, and also some who were actually shot at, shot and wounded in one particular case, a fellow named Larry Weaver was, was shot so much in the abdomen that his intestines were kind of falling, trying to fall out of his belly. And, and it were not for a shipmate of his who, who saw that and he came to help him and he actually held his intestines inside of him and as he mustered him down to the, to the uh, sick bay, which is basically uh, an impromptu um, a medical facility that was normally there uh, the, where they had meals. So anyway, all, all of this was, was, was going on in a, in a situation where they were also blocking any kind of communications coming from the ship, jamming the radio, the frequencies that they knew they were being, that were being used. That just point, that point right there raises a question. If it was really Egypt who was doing this attack, how would they even know that? What, what frequencies would they know that had to be jammed in order to keep the communications up? But they, are, they also realized on the crew, that is, that as the gunfire was happening, as, as, as the actual cannons were being fired at it, th there were lapses. That is, the, the jamming stopped because apparently that interfered with, with the uh, operation of the missiles or the uh, anti-aircraft guns. And it was during that point that this, this one fellow who... Um, realized that there was one antenna that could still be used and the transmitter that was connected to that antenna if he could rewire a coax cable out to it. And so he, he actually ran out on the deck and, and installed this wire and allowed them to send SOS me messages out. 
So within, I think it was about 30 minutes later after the, the, the attack started, he was able to actually actually get that message out, even though all of the other transmitters, all the other antennas were taken out. There was just that one. And the only reason that that did not get taken out was because it had not been running at the time of the attack. That is, there was no heat being generated by that one. So it did not get hit. And so, so that by that just slim uh, slice of luck, they were able to actually communicate to the Sixth Fleet that they were under attack. And that wasn't part of the plan. That was not supposed to happen. Well, it did happen. There were, and there were a number of other things that some of the guys that, that were on, the, on board felt, you know, that was another piece of divine intervention right, right there. And so the accumulation of a lot of those kinds of incidents caused them to think that there was a reason that that ship did not sink. Well, anyway, the attack went on, but the, the jets went away. Now the motor tor torpedo boats entered the scene and they wound up firing four torpedoes at the Liberty, all of which missed. And that begs a huge question. How come all four torpedoes that they tried to shoot at the Liberty missed? There was nothing to prevent them to get getting as close as possible to guarantee that they didn't miss yet they all missed. And according to this fellow, Larry Weaver, I just mentioned, who, who by the way, had to hire a private investigator to prove that he was on the Liberty in order to get his veteran benefits and, and, and his 100% disability approved when the Navy actually tried to deny that he was even on the ship. But he did, he, he, he was able to get that proven. And his investigator, by the way, had high, some high connections in the Pentagon and discovered some secrets that they really didn't want out. And one of which was that that fifth torpedo was not an Israeli torpedo. That torpedo, according to him, according to this investigator, was, was actually a torpedo that was fired by the USS Amberjack at the USS Liberty, i.e. Johnson had one of his own ships shoot a torpedo at another one of his own ships in order to seal the deal, he thought, and sink that ship and be done with it so that he could then de attack uh, his enemy, Gamal Ab Abner, uh, uh, Nasser, and that is bomb Cairo. They, and there were, there were actually a couple of uh, airplanes, A-4s, that were sent with, that were armed with nuclear bombs headed for Cairo, and they were only a few minutes out when they were called back all the airplanes that had been sent out immediately when they got that SOS had to be called back. Can you talk about Johnson's history of using uh, these type of events in uh, his uh, looking to get elected? Well, I, the, the biggest such event was back in 1964 with the Gulf of Tonkin. And the, the mystery of that is that it was amazing that somehow this false flag operation, an attack that never really happened, was so convincing that almost the entire Congress was convinced that it had happened. There were zero congressmen who, who uh, voted against it, and, and there were only two senators out of 100. Wayne that, Morris from Oregon, yay! Right, right. And uh, Ernest Gruning from uh, Alaska. Alaska. Yeah, but all the others, e even the uh, brilliant uh, 
uh, Fulbright, William J. Fulbright, who basically realized after the fact that he was wrong. He even told uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson, who I had lunch with in Racine, Wisconsin in 1965, told me personally with my college professor that I, that I attended there with, Gaylord Nelson told Fulbright that he wanted to vote against the resolution. And Fulbright, you know, responded with, no, you've got to go with us. You know, you've got, you got to get on board. Johnson would never overuse, he would never overextend his authority on this. He would never abuse that. Well, of course he did. And they both realized later, after the fact, that this had happened. It wasn't until the next year, 1966, that Fulbright started balking at the whole enterprise and was sorry that he did what he did. And, and, he, and he got so many other senators to go along with it. So basically, I mean, the, the posit is that the Liberty incident happened because Lyndon Johnson was using it as an election ploy. That's exactly right. And, and re realizing how, how well it worked in 1964, you know, for him to be a re-elected then for the first time with a landslide victory. Of course, there were a lot of other factors going on and who knows how much was could be attributed to any one of them. But the fact is he had a landslide election. Well, 1967, he knew he was in serious trouble. His, 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 rate, his political polling was, were way down, like down in the 30s. And he, he, was, he was so concerned about his re-election that he thought, well, first of all, he and Jagger Hoover thought they could do anything, anything they wanted, and somehow they're going to make, make sure there was, it was covered up effectively, and they were pretty much correct as far as that goes. Uh, and so, yeah, so he thought that, that worked, had worked so well in 1964 that here it was in 67. If, if the ship would have sunk and then he would have attacked Cairo, even though it risked World War III, of course, because uh, Egypt had by then been more closely associated with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, they, they had military ships in the same area. If there had been such an attack, there would have been an immediate response by the Soviet Union. One of their admirals basically said that they were prepared to uh, nail, is this Haifa or um, Tel Aviv or both? I don't know. But anyway, it was, it's, in, it's in the record. It's in the book. And somehow the fact that the Liberty didn't sink avoided that. They, they, uh, at that first juncture, they, they recalled all the aircraft, even the, the aircraft that had been dispatched by the USS America to go to the aid of the, the Liberty. And although the Liberty knew their SOS had gotten through, they were promised that the help was on the way, but the help never arrived. And, and, and uh, in fact, it went through another iteration because 90 minutes later, the same thing occurred. The General Geis had re rearmed the, the uh, fighter aircraft so that, that it was obvious to, it could have been obvious to anyone that they, those airplanes were not capable of handling uh, the, the nuclear bombs. So it was, would have been impossible for them to presume otherwise. And yet the, that fleet, that squadron was, was also recalled because by then the ship had still not sunk and they were very concerned. Johnson was, was uh, so psychotic at that point. He says, I want that goddamn ship going to the bottom. No help. Recall the rings, the wings. That's what he repeated. You know, there, there have been all kinds of other information that had, had um, inadvertently gotten out 
that, that is message, some of the messages that had been exchanged showed up in CIA stations around the world. And, and so, and you had a lot of uh, people later coming forth saying, yeah, I heard all that. Do you think somebody in the military kind of stood in the way and, and made it so it didn't happen or was it just all divine inter intervention? Well, you know, a lot of this is uh, all speculation because no one really knows for sure exactly what caused what. So whatever I say is just an opinion. However, I do have the opinion that some, some of the uh, leadership of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, there was at least one, maybe a couple of generals or admirals who I, I think that were um, uh, apoplectic that this was all going on, that they knew that it was, that, well, they all knew that it was really an American ship, even though they, they denied it later and said, oh, we thought it was, it was Egyptian ship. But uh, for some reason, again, it had to be some, someone's choice that those four torpedoes did not hit that ship. There was just no, you know, uh, clear and uh, understandable reason why they would have shot four torpedoes at a target like that rather large ship and that they would have all missed. And also, even though after the torpedo boats had left, a, a helicopter had come out with, with a lot of uh, soldiers on there ready to rappel down onto the ship set it up so that it would be either put on fire or exploded or something and to, to kill all the crew. I mean, who, who knows what was, would have gone on, but for some reason that didn't happen. They just flew off after hovering there for like 30 minutes. And Phil Turney in, in the book, you know, even talks about how he, he was giving the finger to one of the soldiers who was ready to jump and, and the soldier gave him the finger back and so forth. And they were, it was, it was just a, a frightful situation. I think what happened, though, and even the fact that the war started 10 days early, there had to be some, some other explanation for why they couldn't have waited another 10 days. Because the whole point, the whole thing that Lyndon wanted to do was basically premised on the fact that that war would start on, on a certain day, that was June 15th, and that the liberty would be taken out during all the commotion, all the chaos that was planned and would have not even just been planned it would have been automatically done on that first day on the, because on that first day the entire Egyptian air force was destroyed so how four days later could they then say that attack was by Egypt when I had no air force and you know um, we had the big uh, oh rallying cry for the Spanish-American war uh, remember the main Okay, and, and that has been shown in, in, with historical uh, uh, that, you know, the Spanish didn't put a, uh, uh, didn't shoot it with a torpedo, that the explosion happened inside the ship. Mm -hmm. And so that was a false flag that led us into war. So, and, and know, Pearl Harbor was sort of like that, even though it was Japan, but, but Japan was intimidated and, and sort of goaded in, into doing the attack, and, and they attacked. And Roosevelt and others knew that the attack was coming and really did nothing. If, if the plan had gone according to Hoyle or whatever you want to say, and the liberty was lost during a Egyptian-Israeli war that had happened, you know, a little bit later on, and we could have blamed it on the Egyptians, what do you think would have happened? Well, the, the idea, I mean, had it succeeded and had it happened on the first day and all, everything gone 
according to Hoyle, as you put it, then Johnson would have would have uh, d- declared victory and he would have had his moment, you know, celebrating and instead of cowering and, and having to cover everything up, he would have been celebrating the, the thing and making the most of it because he knew that that the political clout that he would be given by the very people who were most prominent in protesting the war, basically young Jewish men like Abby Hoffman and Jerry uh, uh, Rubin and, and many others, right there in Lafayette Park across the street, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Uh, that was the incessant chant that they, they were doing. And they're mostly young Jewish men and some women and some others, of course. But that, that was the, the group that he was most concerned about because he felt that he, he had done as much as he could and even more than anyone else had ever done for, for Israel and for Jews in general. You know, at this point, uh, his, his uh, appointee on the Democratic National Co- Convention as the finance guy was Abe Weinstein. And the, the fact that, that the Jewish people were, had gotten so divided regarding Johnson's leadership, he, he just felt that was insulting to him because he had aligned himself with, with them so strongly for many years. And, and here he had to do, do this. And, and I think that it was all in his deluded mind r- related to trying to win back that part of the demographic. That, that's what it amounts to, in so many words. Cynical blood politics, I tell you, just, uh, you know, it, it, uh, most people won't even go there to, to think that somebody would, would do something like that and, and used, you know, the blood of our own citizens to help themselves get elected. I mean, that's... Uh... I'm just repeating a lot of stuff that, that came from the military leaders over there at the time. For, right. for example, Ca- Captain McGonagall, on his, on, I guess, near his deathbed, told uh, Lieutenant uh, George Golden that it was, quote, the president and Robert McNamara, that he had straight information through Fort Meade, NSA, that when they sent us up from over in Africa, we were there to have this happen. 